This is the Deep Color podcast series. Deep Color is an oral history project where I talk with artists about their work and their lives. The ultimate goal here is to give listeners a better understanding about the experiences and people behind the artwork. My name is Joseph Hart. I produce and facilitate this series. These recordings are casual, straight on, and unscripted. Deep Color is supported by the New York Studio School, where drawing, painting, and sculpture are studied in depth, debated energetically, and created with passion. The New York Studio School offers a range of programs, including internationally recognized drawing marathons, evening and Saturday classes, and a distinguished lecture series that is free and open to the public. Applications for full-time study in the two-year MFA and three-year certificate program are due February 15th. Apply online today at nyss.org. This episode profiles Tao Lewis. Tao is a self-taught artist that makes sculpture using materials like textiles and furs, found objects, carved plaster, and organic items like stones, seashells, and human hair. Her work often takes on the form of close-to-life-sized figures, typically sitting in a chair, or curled on the floor in positions of rest. Tao also makes stitched fabric wall works, or quilts, that are full of graceful details and dynamic contours. The work is packed with history and touch, and surrounds ideas connected to portraiture, black identity, and healing through labor. We recorded this conversation at her temporary studio in the Mott Haven section of the Bronx. But it was helpful for me to be at your artist talk because it sort of gave me a sort of pathway into things. Um, But what an interesting place to start, I thought, uh, was how you've introduced that presentation um, with Souls Grown Deep. Yeah. And I thought that was a really generous thing to do because it was sort of this, you, I, I think it was clear that you are, you're an admirer of some of the artists in that, that are represented or taken care of by that foundation. Um, all of them. All of them? Yeah. Um, yeah, you mentioned a few, but I thought like it's always nice when, when artists are, are willing to talk about the artists that they look up to. Mm-hmm. Um, or that have taught them something in some capacity to talk about those. So I thought that'd be a good place to start. Mm-hmm. Um, but for listeners that might not be familiar with, with what Souls Grown Deep is, um, could you give us a little yeah. little, little information about <clears throat> it? So Souls Grown Deep was um, started by Will, and Will Arnett. Um, it's essentially um, a collection, a massive collection of... Um, several different artists who were practicing mostly in um, Birmingham, Alabama. Um, This is art that was very much kind of triggered by the civil rights movement. Um, So that era, um, and this is art that was kind of coming out of a place um, of cultural production that was um, very specific to, to black Southern folks in that, um, you know, post-slavery, this this type of production goes back to post-slavery where um, anything that was artistic was being produced in secrecy. Um, so there came out of that a really beautiful material language that's very specific um, to these artists in that it's um, largely constructed out of scraps or um, 
you know, what most people would consider trash. Um, yeah, a lot of found well as, objects. Yeah, as well as debris and mm-hmm. a lot of organic materials. Um, so I just think there's a beautiful poetry to that material language and that, you know, repurposing of things. So this um, foundation started to kind of, I guess, archive right. these artists. And uh, as well included in um, that archive is the quilt makers of G's Bend. So right, they're, they're probably the most well-known. yeah to the broader viewing public. Yeah, but Souls Grown Deep, which is, um, <clears throat> they have a warehouse in Atlanta that houses all of this um, artwork, also has a massive collection of these quilts. So some of the artists that were in that group that you mentioned as um, kind of almost like a, a hero or just the work that you admire were, were, mm-hmm. were Richard and Thornton Dial, uh, Bessie, Harvey mm-hmm. Hawkins Bolden, who I was familiar with, mm-hmm. I saw a documentary about him at some point, mm-hmm. and I think it mentioned Souls Grown Deep, so that was my entrance in. And then uh, 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 an interesting sort of collision was was with Lonnie Holly and Joe Winter, who you got to meet. Mm-hmm. Joe uh, Minter. Joe Winter. Minter. With Minter a, with an M. Oh, I I uh, wrote it upside down. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but um, you told a story about like making. A decision that you wanted to meet these people mm-hmm. and you figured out how to get in touch with them and you designed a trip around meeting them and going traveling from Toronto mm-hmm. to Atlanta to meet them mm-hmm. can you talk about that and sort of maybe the process in which you got a hold of them because one of the things I talk about with students and other artists is if you see something you like and the person's reachable try, what, try and yeah. reach them that's what I always tell people as yeah. well. Um, I had been um, actually introduced to Lonnie Hawley's work by Simon Cole, who's my the director at the gallery that I show with Cooper Cole in Toronto. Um, and that was, I think, in like early um, 2016, so really not a very long time ago. Um, I had like a piece of paper on the wall in my studio where I would write down the names of other artists or publications or um, art movements in general that um, I should look into and research so I wrote his name down um, after researching him a little bit and um, you know just I had come to New York a couple times and seen work of his at um, James Fuentes I decided that I wanted to plan this trip because also I think if you know you find people that are important to you in your practice and they're alive (laughs) and they're reachable you should go and try and find a way to get to them um, so I had planned to visit Atlanta with the hopes of um, meeting him. I wasn't sure how I was going to do that. Um, but it was after I made that decision, I was offered an exhibition at Atlanta Contemporary. Um, so I just lined up in a way. Kind of. Yeah. Kind of. A lot of it had to do with the work that I was making because um, there's a strange material connection to some of my work and some of the work of these artists. And Daniel Fuller, who's the curator at Atlanta Contemporary, he's very close um, to these artists, Mm -hmm. to Minter um, and Holly. Mm -hmm. And he's very kind of well-versed on um, their practices. And he had also curated a show of Joe Minter's work at Atlanta Contemporary to be opening on the same night as my exhibition. Did he help you get in touch with him directly? or how to, I, I guess I'm just curious, like the... Well, we had, yeah, we had planned yeah. to make that happen, but as soon as I stepped my foot into the gallery when I arrived, Lonnie was right in front of me. Oh. So he was ready. He had already seen my show. 
And he shook my hand and said, thumbs up for Mother Universe. If you ever meet him, that's what he's going to say to you. Thumbs up, and Mother Universe. Thumbs up for Mother Universe. And he'll shake your hand and he'll put his thumb to your thumb. Amazing. Um, <clears throat> and then we spent, you know, a little while, um, Lonnie and myself and Joe in the, the basement, which is where I had my exhibition. Um, and we talked about art for a little while. And the next day we went to... Souls Grown Deep together. So Souls Grown Deep is a, is a space, too? Yes. Okay. So there's works on display. And didn't you get a chance to go to their workshops? I feel like I saw a picture of you. Or maybe that was at Souls Grown Deep that around was, their work. That was at Souls Grown Deep, yeah. yeah. That's, a, that's great. And you got to collaborate. You, you like the, A little impromptu collaboration took place with mm-hmm. taking pictures of things back and forth. Yeah, so Lonnie is very, like, obsessed with phones and communication and technology, mm-hmm. which I find to be, like, really radical and cool. How old is Lonnie? Um, he must be 71 now. We could Google that, but he's in his older age. Um, his brain functions in a way that I've never seen in another human before. Um, I don't know if you know this about Lonnie. He also makes music. And he doesn't write or rehearse anything. He just records kind of... It's all improvised. It's improvised, and he works the same way with instruments. Um, So he's quite incredible, and he's very obsessed with taking photos of things and digital manipulation of photographs. Um, So the time we spent together was very much about, like, get this on your phone, take take the picture. You know, send send me the picture, and I'll send you the picture. And there was a lot of, like, back and forth on our iPhones. Um, and with images mostly with images. So Uh we did a series of about, there must be about 80 of them of Mm -hmm. these digital collaborations, um, which I have on my computer and which maybe we'll do something with at some point. Right. Um, you mentioned the, the sort of a kinship between materials. And that's one of the things I noticed when I spent some time looking at the work of the artists underneath the souls grown deep umbrella um mm-hmm. and you know those materials are f- in the forefront of your work as well it's found objects pieces of nature tree branches plants fabrics uh can you talk about how i mean for w- one of the things that struck me with your work the first time i saw it was the materiality of it mm-hmm. and this love for materials and the touch in the materials and the 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 history in these materials mm-hmm. um can you talk about some of the the objects and things that you collect and use to make your stuff mm-hmm. um so i guess there's like kind of maybe the, i can shorten this into three points sure. there's a lot to be said about materials especially found things but i'm mostly interested in recycling Mm-hmm. Um, I don't like to spend a lot of money on on production, um, and this comes from a few places. I mean, this comes from a um, working with what resources are available to you, and b. I mean, I don't believe that art making has to be um, inaccessible to anyone, and I've definitely had points you know a a couple years ago before I really started considering the materiality of found objects um 
I just don't think that there's anything that you um you can't do and I think there's such an abundance of things that um we have access to yeah. that we can uh work into our art making. I also was thinking a lot about, you know, Black Canada, like I've been working in Canada for the last 5 years. Um so I wanted to kind of consider how I could use the landscape there to kind of talk about erasure and the way that I do that is by using things that I find outside mm-hmm. um, to build physical things that tell stories. And then lastly, I mean, I'm really just interested in resourcefulness and what that means in the context of of blackness, right? Because when we think about black cultural production, so much of it is about recycling and so much of it is about <coughs> you know, using what's there to make something something else. And so I consider this like reappropriation of meaning or um reassigning meaning to an object or just generally what does it mean for black folks to archive mm-hmm. and to collect and to go out and seek. Right? So with working in a space of erasure, um Found objects are interesting because they do have histories and they do have have stories and they do carry a lot of life and energy with them. Right. So I think about what it means to kind of um, to to upcycle, you know, f- physically and and spiritually. Right. Maybe we could talk about how how you actually begin and work through uh, a sculpture, mm-hmm. or maybe one of your wall works. Um, you know, we're sitting in in your temporary studio space in the Bronx which is actually your friend Cheyenne Julian's space. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to I'm going to describe the setting where it's this is a making space. You you know your work deals or, or the materials that you're using right now is a lot of fabric that's been cut and you're collaging it together and you're sewing it. Um, it's sort of strewn across the floor so the floor seems like a primary work surface. Mm-hmm. Um, you've got spools of thread, scissors, um, stacks of materials that you've collected or that have been donated. I know you, you work with, with materials that are given to you as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's a cot that I'm sitting next to that's like a resting place. And one of your sculptures um, that you've named Sparkle is taking a break on it next to me here. Mm-hmm. Is this typical of how your studio space is? I know this is sort of a temporary space, but is it sort of strewn on the floors, you know, there's real, there's not really a demarcation, demarcate, what's the word I'm trying to say? (laughs) Demarcation. Demarcation of like, this is for this type of procedure, this is for that type of procedure, sort of all blended together, which I think is, Mm -hmm. feels right to me in here. Um, But is this typical? Uh, Yeah, yes and no, the mess is typical. I mean, normally I would have a couple of tables that I would use for work surfaces, but sometimes I like to sew at a table and sometimes I like to do it on the floor. Right. So lately, because I'm working in fabric so much and because I only have this small table here, mm-hmm. um, I'll just use the floor. Right. And I know you don't do drawings. You just sort of set up and go. Do you have an image in your head that you're working from? Um, like, yeah. I, I'm wondering, like, where the form starts to s- present itself. Because um, I know you make you, you know you, a lot of you're working with parts of the figure quite often, um, so I'm just curious like mm-hmm. where the starting point is or how it changes. Um, 
I mean, I see you're sewing swaths together here to mm-hmm. make bigger pieces that I, I assume will get wrapped and turned into a, a some sort of arm or leg or torso or something or face. Well, maybe. These yeah. actually, I think, are going to stay flat. So these will be quilts. Oh, okay. They'll be quilts, but they'll be like kind of um, portraits at the same time. Um, it really depends. Like normally, yeah, I do have some sort of picture in my head maybe but it never comes out to look like that Mm -hmm. sparkle was going to be like completely different color and completely different scale but when something starts happening i don't like to um manipulate too much to make it go a certain direction so with sculpture it's always starts with an object normally um i'll save something small like there were a couple small things that i brought with me from toronto Mm -hmm. um surveying the street and finding things outside um i'll start collections like i have a small collection of things going on on that table and it usually starts with an object and then that will kind of lead me somewhere i have to sit with the object sometimes color is really important Mm -hmm. um it also i mean because i'm working with donations while i'm here in new york it depends on the donations in large yeah that'll dictate the palette that you're working absolutely it looks like you're curating within the donated items yeah. Um, there's definitely a, like a, a temperature to the colors that uh-huh. you're working with. Um, there's a lot of, you know, kind of, these are all cooler colors. There's blues, purples and violets, navies, yeah. blacks. Every now and then there's like a hint of like some bright magenta or even that like seafoam green. Like these are colors from, for me, the ocean, yeah, the forest at night, things like this. Yeah, this is the stuff that's on the floor right now that I'm working on as part of a show that's largely about caves and water systems. Okay. So that's the palette that I'm using for Mm. for these works. And then um, I'm going to make another quilt after I finish these, which is going to be more a map to where Sparkle comes from. And Sparkle is a celestial and cosmic being. Mm -hmm. She's very much from out of space. Um, so there's lots of like, I don't know, weird like reds and tan and, and yellow and all these things yeah. that kind of remind me of Mars a little bit. Yeah, this, she is kind of like out of this world. Maybe I'll just describe her real quick. She's mm-hmm. almost life size. Like this is like a... She's very tall. She's, she's tall. tall. She's taller than us, I think. It's a jointed figure, meaning the the shoulder, elbow, hips, knees, ankles, and maybe head. Mm-hmm. are all jointed so it's positionable it's movable it has a flexibility to it it's quilted you can see your sewing throughout mm-hmm. and there's it looks like pieces of hardware that you're using for the joint that like you either found or yep. picked up at a hardware store or something probably found though this stuff is all found yeah this i got from the hardware store it's fab i've never worked with it before fab is there a is there an armature what's the armature inside to keep her rigid she has a skeleton just in her torso that okay. turns into um, shoulders and a neck. What's and that made out of? The same sort same of stuff. copper thing, except I'll put like four of them together to make a thicker. Is it tubing? Is that hollow? Yeah. Okay, so it's like a piece of copper tubing. Yeah. And then another, th- you know, thing that I think I mean, she's got she's wearing jewelry that you've made for her. Yeah. Which is also bits of found items. Looks like from the street, maybe mm-hmm. uh, a piece of twine 
as the necklace. Um, and then the faces. The faces are usually plaster now mm-hmm. that you've carved. Mm-hmm. And you're, you're adding pigment to the plaster. Sometimes. Sometimes. Sparkle's face is just um, pure plaster that's mm-hmm. painted on top of. But her foot is um, pigment added to the plaster. Okay. Just carved. So do you, do you mix a, 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 like a block of plaster... And as it's drying, are you sort of molding it or do you let it dry completely and then sort of start chiseling away? I guess I'm wondering about the carving aspect and when that comes in. So this wire that you can see here, this goes inside of of the foot. So I'll lay a little bit of plaster on a piece of fabric and then I'll set this wire that I've kind of made into a foot-like skeleton on top of the plaster and then I'll layer more. So it's in this rectangle shape. Uh Uh-huh. Um, is quite thick the way I mix it. I add a lot of plaster mm-hmm. and not a lot of water, so it's thicker. Right. So that way I can kind of manipulate it with my fingers before it's even dry, if that right. makes sense. Yeah, yeah, totally. And then the eyes, I feel like eyes are something that jumps out at me in your work. The eyes are often rocks that you've collected. Yeah. Um, the other, another piece, not so much on sparkle here, but seashells I know have, have shown up in the work. Yeah. Um, and I'm thinking of like the small things that are from nature that you know kind of have an important role in these as fingernails or toenails mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um but the, the 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 painted rocks as eyes are something that jumps out at me mm-hmm. and you know on one hand you know eyes can like make or break the spirit of something i'm thinking of like cgi and how CGI eyes are dead to me is is like as as well as and like as sharp and as like almost realistic in quotations Mm -hmm. uh, a designer can make a computer generated face it's still dead to me Mm -hmm. Um, you're using rocks which are lifeless but the way that they're presented in the context of all these other materials it's it's alive in a way Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know the eyes the eyes feel like a thing yeah, they are alive. I mean, rocks are, they're minerals, right? They're made out of minerals and they hold on to a charge very much. Just the same way that, um, you know, wood or any kind of fibers will like hang on to an mm-hmm. energetic charge. And also they have so much going on inside of them. If you pick up a stone and you really want to spend time with it, you'll see that there's, you know, a world of different colors and yes. textures happening inside of it. Sometimes I put the eyes inside the head and I don't even want to paint them just because there's such beautiful things happening mm-hmm. in the stones already. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're little time capsules, uh-huh. um, which are nice too. Um, another important, you know, I'm sort of walking this down this road of, of yeah. materials. I know hair is important too, mm-hmm. um, especially black hair. And you've talked about um, the memory of black hair. Mm-hmm. Um, can you can you share a little bit about how you use hair and, and the importance of hair in your work? Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is a cultural thing in in many aspects. And um, I know a lot of people, you know, don't have this experience, but this is something that I know very well. I had dreadlocks for the first seventeen years of my life. Um, meaning that my mom let my hair dread itself um, when I was about two, and I cut them after high school. Uh, my brother also cut his hair at some point. And anyway, I held on to them. You, you know, with dreadlocks, you're supposed to either bury it or burn it. Um, I held on to mine, um, and I started reusing them in my work. And this is something that, like, 
is quite overwhelming, like opening up and looking at a bundle of your hair and seeing and feeling some of the um, energy that is actually on it as a material. It spends its whole life attached to your head. Mm -hmm. Um, People don't think about it, but there's a huge transference of information and like very real energy that can come off into your hair. Mm That can be good, that can be negative, that can be like a whole host of things. But hair is quite sacred in a lot of ways for that reason. Um, and in a lot of black cultures, you know, you don't want someone to to have your hair. You don't want someone else to get a hold of it. You don't, you know, you want to, if you're going to do away with it, do away with it or keep it or there's a lot of things going on. Um, I also, you know, think it's really interesting the way that like, in so many like Yoruba cultures in Africa, um, hair is used in, you know, a lot of ceremonial objects. Um, it's a huge part of a lot of African religions and spiritual traditions. There's no shying away of using it in, in art objects. And I always have to be like, I have to remind people like it's a bit iffy, you know, when you see, um, you know, like a piece of weave or something on the street, mm-hmm. or you you come in contact with someone else's hair, or and you're like, oh, gross. It's like, why is that so? Why is that so gross to you? Right. You know. Um, it's mostly, I think, someone wrestling with their own cultural discomfort or something like that. Yeah, and people yeah. people are disgusted, especially by black hair, and this is a reality about people. Um, people don't appreciate black hair. People do everything they can to kind of restrict it. You know, there are still schools in the world where you're not allowed to wear your hair out naturally. Um, and this is a very real thing. And someone asked me, like, um, in an interview for their magazine, like, why, why do you do that? And, like, I think I put the hair on the sculpture because I think it's beautiful. Mm-hmm. You know, every time I cut my hair... I save it so that I can give it to one of my sculptures. Yeah, there's a tradition to that, yeah. saving hair. Yeah. I have people in my life that have envelopes full of their hair since they were young, and they're in their old age now. So mm-hmm. um, there's a tradition of that, I think, and it kind of connects back into personal history and memory mm-hmm. and the spirituality of hair. Um, yeah, I think it's it's a powerful material. It's a powerful thing. Um, and you're putting it, well, sparkle, it doesn't look like sparkle has any... No, Sparkle no. doesn't have any human hair. Right. Um, I do have a yeah. bundle of dreadlocks in this studio, though, that was donated to me by wow, my Wow, that's incredible. Sean. Yeah, it's somewhere in here. Um, the other thing I, I think is important to talk about with your process is the, the labor of it and, and therapy through labor, and then also on the other side of that, the joy of making. I know mm-hmm. you've talked about the joyfulness that comes out of making something. Mm-hmm. And I think for a lot of artists, myself included, like, making something and using my hands is a way for me to be um, responsive to my own thoughts and my own self and also just process my day, my week, my life. But talk about the, 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 the both the therapy and healing that takes place through making as well as the joy that, mm-hmm. that, that comes through in making because these are, these are all important things. Yeah. I want to, you know, think about ways to kind of, um achieve autonomy through a process of making um black folks are the least transcendent 
when it comes to the way that we're consumed and perceived physically by the rest of the outside world. And what I mean by that is if you're riding the train and a black person gets out of their street, they're, they're out of their seat and starts yelling or acting crazy, they're acting on behalf in that moment of every black person. The same is not to be said of um, white folks, but this is what I mean when I say that we have zero transcendence because we're so quickly prescribed our narratives. So here is a place where <clears throat> I'm the director and I'm thinking a lot about geographies and specifically the geographies of the black imagination, which are completely inaccessible a lot of times to non-black people. So this is a place where I have control and I'm working through ways of achieving autonomy and self-definition and through that healing um, from a lot of things um, just by taking back my own narrative, taking back my own trauma, taking back um, a lot of things and finding magic um, with, within this space, if that makes any sense. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the other things that I, I read in a past interview is that you really appreciate the points of view of children with your work. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So I have the benefit of having a, an eight-year-old and a four-year-old <laughs> in my life. Yeah. So we sat down and looked at your work, and I wanted to share with you um, what your work communicated to them. Oh, yeah. Um, so my daughter, who's eight... These are some of the things she said. The faces look real, especially the eyes and teeth. Wow. She was, uh, you know, I can't remember the titles of the works, but it was one of the works. I'll, I'll describe it. I, it. It's smaller. It's sitting in a rocker. It's got more mm -hmm. colorful clothing. That's Gloria little gal. Little yeah. gal. Um, she said, it's a kid. She looks sad. Mm-hmm. She's got Lilo and Stitch, I think, which she is... She does have a Stitch doll. Which was a little doll in her overalls. Yeah. But and the interesting thing is she said she looks sad, but the work overall makes my daughter feel happy, mm -hmm. which was interesting. An interesting read, I thought. Mm -hmm. That's exactly how I feel about Little Gal. Yeah? That's a self-portrait. It's the first doll I ever made, and she's mine. She's the only thing of yeah. mine that I actually keep and I own and live with. Um, she's wise. She's an old wise soul little gal yes mm -hmm. but she also brings a lot of joy and then another uh, a few things that my daughter said were uh, words that like jumped out at me were fortune teller she used the word doll she used the word puppet mm -hmm. um totem she used mm -hmm. with one of your more vertical pieces mm -hmm. flying creature wow junkyard mm -hmm. and then this was a reaction to uh, when i took her to see her work when it was out on randall's island um, was that this past spring? It was. Um, you know, it creeped her out. Mm -hmm. um, um, and especially like revisiting some of the work, uh, the works that don't have a body. They're just like a, some sort of vertical with a face on it. And I think it was just the absence of more recognizable body parts. Um, and I think what she was responding to and what you've written about in your own work is the strangeness of some of these forms. Mm -hmm. Um and then the last thing she said was skeleton. But I thought that was like a nice read mm -hmm. on from an eight-year-old or like what the work was communicating. Maybe that's a nice way to start talking about some of the ideas in your work. Mm -hmm. You talked about black geography. I know you've also mentioned portraits of landscapes. Mm 
Mm-hmm. Um, and I like this term landscape. I wondered if we could talk about that mm-hmm. and how you use it. You know, I think like the surface term of landscape is it's this picture of, of the natural landscape in front of you. Um, but a more broader definition is the, sur- the full surrounding space, the surround of us and not necessarily of land in front of you. It's like this, this um, snapshot of life or something like that. So I'm just wondering how you define landscape um, and maybe how, how portraits of landscapes kind of work as an idea in your head. Yeah. That was a lot. Sorry, I just (laughs) threw a lot at you there. That's okay. A landscape is something that's been um, cultivated by humans, right? So when I'm thinking about landscapes, I'm usually thinking about the ones that I'm most closely connected to. So I make um, portraits that are thinking about Jamaica or the Caribbean as a landscape and also Canada. Um, so these come back to, I think, ideas about blackness and the construction of blackness as well as peoples within the diaspora. Um, so when I'm thinking about landscape, I'm not thinking about them as separate from humans. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking about, um, I guess, relationships and also the... Um, the construction of places and the construction of people within those places, I think. Um, does that make any sense? Yeah, sure. Is, did that answer the question? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's such a malleable term, this idea of a landscape. Yeah. Um, which is why I was sort of drawn. I'm drawn to using it, too, when I'm talking about things other than the, the a, a traditional landscape. Yeah. And um, then sometimes yeah. when I say landscape, I actually should be saying, like, I don't know. I'm, I'm describing like a, a natural territory or I'm describing like, uh, I don't know. I use the word too broadly. Well, another thing, maybe to like pivot into some more ideas that I, that I get from your work, you know, this, this, there's a history and then the sort of back and forth between memory and history, mm-hmm. um, and personal history um, as it rubs up against uh, a broader history of an, another group or something like that. that fe- I feel like I get that from your work. And, you know, I wrote down some other words that kept bubbling up in your talk the other night. Um, blackness, racialized identity, uh, black geography. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've talked about some of these things. Is there something that you have always wanted to talk about your work but haven't had an opportunity to? Or... Mm-hmm. Um, something that you think viewers overlook? Um, I don't know. I just wanted to sort of put that out there. Um, maybe maybe we could talk about this word blackness. Okay. Um, and maybe some of the uh, confusion involved in the conversation we just had about blue people. Which was off mic, yeah. by the way. <laughs> yeah. um, so sometimes I make blue people. Um, and, you know, I make things that for the most part are about blackness, right? Mm -hmm. So I think that it's important to remember that blackness is a construction, something that was created. Blackness came after Africans did is what I'm trying to say, right? Whiteness is also something that is created, was created. Mm -hmm. Um, social, social constructs. Yeah, Mm -hmm. and blackness is something that is always changing. 
um, and that is constantly evolving and shape-shifting and comes in many different forms in many different places. Um, so, you know, maybe that helps us understand better why something can be blue and still be about blackness. Right. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I, I just, I, t- I touch on this in the talk a little bit maybe, but there's a lot of frustration that comes from certain audiences when a black artist is making something that's um, not specifically about a kind of trauma that has to do with anti-black racism or slavery because it subtracts whiteness from the work, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, because you can make a painting of you know black people and have it still be very much about whiteness right um and just for some context when you say making blue people that's some of the pigment you put into the plaster that materializes and it shows up in the faces that you carve or even in the fabrics that you're using is that what you're talking about mm-hmm. blue people yeah yeah um or mermaids or mermaids i know mermaids are important you want to yeah. take a second to talk about mermaids yeah that's like a reoccurring motif in your work or theme mm-hmm. um yeah I think there, everything I make belongs to the same sort of um, family and they come in and out of different imagined worlds and imagined geographies and one of the most central parts of that is water and we, so, we just know so little about water um, and this is such a huge site of erasure in black history um, you know due to the middle passage and it's something that you know black artists and thinkers and writers are always kind of quarreling with because we have to and it's impossible not to think about but I think that there's like incredible potential for storytelling and wonder within this you know erasure when we look at the water as a medium for kind of holding potential for storytelling I think I just went in a circle there that's fine (laughs) um but when I'm talking about mermaids I'm talking about basically imaginary um, aquatic beings that I've invented in remembrance of what would have been lost to the Middle Passage, right? which is phenomenal amounts of communities and religious practices, stories, right. imagination. I feel like it's also um, worth pointing out that when you say, and correct me if I'm wrong, but when you make mermaids or make work about mermaids, there's not, it's not like a form with a tail. No. You, it's still a person, um, which I think is an important distinction to make. Mm-hmm. Um, um, so th- it's this broader idea of a being that comes from the water, perhaps. Let's talk about your relationship with your sculptures, because I know you live with your work. You have a little gal that you live with. Um, but naming your work is, is, seems important, as far as I can tell. This mm-hmm. is sparkle here. I, I think like giving a name to a body is incredibly important. Important. Can you talk about uh, naming your work and spending um, time with your work and the difficulties of letting go of your work because of these intense relationships? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm able to kind of, um, you know, learn things and uh, have conversations, not always verbal, 
but sometimes in ways that are unspoken with the things that I make that I can't find in humans that I don't think are possible with other people. Um, and I think this is largely in part to the labors that go into creating them. There's a huge transference of myself, even if there aren't infusions of, you know, my objects and my yeah. clothing in these things. But there's a huge transference from myself just by the um, the work that is passing through my hands onto these things. <coughs> As you can imagine, it's like quite intense mm -hmm. doing this amount of labor with my hands on something. Um, yeah, you don't use machines. You're sewing. Everything's by hand. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a lot of repetitive um, and emotionally intense um, action that yep. like goes into the production of of one of um, these artworks. So coming out of that, you know, it's like a journey going into it and coming out of that is an elated feeling. Um, yeah, there's a lot of time. Mm -hmm. In each and all those stitches, that's thinking time and processing time, I imagine. Yeah. And, and time to develop that relationship with the... With the Absolutely. Um, and, you know, I do, yeah. I do believe in objects being charged. Mm -hmm. And I do believe in there being, um, you know, things that an object will hold on to. And these feel very real to me when I'm done. Mm-hmm. Um, or when they arrive and like maybe I have a better kind of sense for that because I've laid my hands on everything that is used in Sparkle's construction. But I do feel like there's a presence with me here when I sit alone yeah. with Sparkle or when yeah. I'm working. I don't feel like I'm alone in the room. Yeah. And that's not just because I see her body in my periphery. It's because I feel things coming off of her. Right. Um, yeah, you had her at your artist talk the other night. Which I thought was like a, a nice gesture as well. Yeah, we I, went out for dinner after. Yeah, we, how, I wanted we to ask to how park. you got her from here down downtown. I took a cab. So she sat in the cab with you. Yeah, that's great. Let's do let, let's do a little bit of biography if you're comfortable with that. I know you you're you've lived in Toronto. You're are you a Canadian citizen? Mm -hmm. um, can you talk about uh, maybe your your early artistic influence if there were any or people or experiences or what introduced you to the idea of art mm -hmm. um i think hearing that uh is always fascinating mm -hmm. uh, where artists sort of like were, were shown shown something that 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 brought them into art yeah i think um i struggled from the time i was aware that um i could be struggling in school and that means my entire um, education um, but the this was the only place that I felt comfortable or safe or really just like I had any capabilities as a student um, making art you mean yeah okay because apparently I sucked at everything else <laughs> and I don't think that's true right. at all I think I was really smart and I think I'm still really smart and there's a lot of things that I'm good at, but there are a lot of things I kind of gave up on very early on because I was told that I couldn't do them. So I think um, art making in, in that sense, in that um, it was a place where I felt comfortable very early on making little paintings and stuff like this. Mm -hmm. 
Um, at a very young age? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we had a visiting um, art teacher at my public school called Charmaine Lurch, and Charmaine and I are still friends. And she would come to my school, I think, uh, once a, once a week or once every couple weeks, and we would have art lessons with her. And she was so fab. I can still remember like calling her mom by accident a few times because she really just made me feel a way um, about being in a classroom that was the complete opposite of what I knew. Um, the other thing... My mom, who's Canadian and still lives in Canada part-time, we she still lives in the house where I grew up in. Um, I never started thinking about her as someone who collected art until very recently, until I started actually thinking about what art is. Um, and every single surface and wall of the house that I grew up in is a different color and is completely covered from top to bottom in different objects and strange little things that she'd collected. And to other people, it might have looked weird and junky and like overwhelming, but to her it was actually quite carefully curated and she was always adding to this collection. Um, really weird stuff, tiles, pieces of metal, a lot of it was craft. There's a blurred line between what's art and what's craft. Mm -hmm. And then some of it was hers because she used to do watercolor paintings a long time ago. Um, so, I grew up looking at like uh, an abundance of really strange things just in my house. A lot of visual stimu stimuli. Yeah, I mean, that sounds like that's the material. Yeah. A lot of material around you. Mm -hmm. And the walls were always changing colors. She was uh -huh. always painting and getting bored and then painting again. Stencils everywhere. Uh -huh. um, Do you remember your bedroom when you were a kid? Yeah. What were on your walls in your bedroom? Yeah. Well, for most of my childhood, I shared a small room with my brother, and we had a bunk bed. So I think he got to be in charge for a long time of what the colors were in there. Mm -hmm. um, he really liked red. And then we had a world map on the wall. Um, and then I think when, I, when he got a different room and I got to have the our room to ourself, my mom and I painted it purple. Because I really like purple. I still love purple. Mm -hmm. um, we put clouds on the ceiling. We painted stars around the middle of the room. It was three different colors of purple. It was really nice. Um, Did you have posters? Or like clippings from magazines or any images on your walls? No, over the paint job? No. But I did used to keep secret books with um, clippings and things in uh, them. Like journals or something like this? Yeah, maybe there were sketchbooks. When I look back on it now, maybe there were sketchbooks, but they usually had to do with um, clothes and, um, you know, models wearing things. Mm. Or I would draw pictures of princesses and stuff like that. A, uh, a friend we have in common and supporter of this project um, gave me an inside scoop. I heard uh, it was shared with me that you broke your mom's printer printing out pictures of Eminem. Okay. <laughs> I know who did this and we're going to not give him the satisfaction. Yeah. And we're going to not talk about okay, it. Okay. Fair enough. Well done. So if anyone <laughs> listening to the podcast meets me in person, I'll be more than happy to tell you yeah. about the Eminem situation. And Joe, I'll happy to share it with you after the podcast. <laughs> That's not public information. But though. Simon is not getting the satisfaction <laughs> right now. Okay. Um, you know, it's funny, like in these little, these moments, I like try and find the, the like little 
pieces of humanity that are like separate from the ark that are that are like maybe from our youth or history and like simon fed me that one um there's so much yeah. better stuff he could have fed you he's what just, about he's what just about obsessed with that story because it's so embarrassing for me <laughs> what about uh erotic drawings of michael jackson yeah 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 i mean i hope my mom doesn't hear this podcast but i did have a book of erotic drawings of mj yeah I'm not how, ashamed of it. He's a sex icon. He always yeah. has been. I mean, how almost how can you not draw him without eroticism in it somehow? Yeah. He also just, as a kid, like, I don't mind talking openly about this. I'm, like, an openly queer person. Like, he really blurred the lines between, like, what man and woman was. Mm-hmm. And just in the way that he moved his body and his performance. And I think, honestly, like, MJ was the first person that I was ever sexually, like, you know, like oh you had a response to yeah yeah absolutely yeah i know i'm not the only one no i mean i mean the world i think responded to him in some capacity um for sure um was it embarrassing when my mom found a book of pornographic drawings yes (laughs) absolutely do you still have them no no they're gone gone. i mean she's kind of weird maybe she saved it but I mean, I don't know where it is. You know, com- you know, I, I think comparisons are, uh, uh, you know, uh, a slippery slope. But part of me wanted to and, and go into this whole Canada relative to the United States, mm-hmm. maybe Toronto relative to New York. And I know like the art scene in Toronto is not obviously not going to be as vast as the one in New York. Mm-hmm. But I wonder what it's like to be an artist in Toronto. Um because I think if you ask, if you polled a lot of people here in town, it's this two-sided thing. On one side, you're, you're immersed in culture and, and opportunity and events and, and community. And the other side of that is the near, near impossibility of surviving as mm-hmm. an artist and sustaining as an artist because of the cost of living. Do you have the same conversations about all this stuff in Toronto or is it a different different thing? It's different. Yeah. Yeah. It's easier? Um it's yeah, the I living. guess just I guess like like to to run a studio, is it I'm going to presume it's more affordable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's still expensive and there's still like decreasing amounts of space. I mean the the more you kind of every time you turn around someone's getting kicked out of their studio. But I mean in terms of costs, yeah, it is like you know, pretty affordable in comparison to here. And it's also a very generative space, I find, for myself. Like, Mm -hmm. living in Toronto for the last five years and working as an artist has kind of allowed me to um, be able to be in my studio full-time and not have to work any other job and, like, sustain off of my sales, which is, I mean, pretty, like, remarkable, I think, just in general, but much more possible there than it would be here. Right. Um, is it much more quiet there? Yeah, of course. There's a lot less going on, but it's also not. And that's just based on population. It's based on population, and it's also based on, um, you know, where we're at, just in terms of, like, an art community. Like, Toronto art, I think that's the idea of it is much younger than it is here. It's not... um, hasn't as long been established as a part of the culture as a whole. 
whereas in in New York it's such um it's such a part of the the culture that everyone knows it to be that mm-hmm. you know yeah um I had a fun time when I was in Toronto I was there for a project years ago mm-hmm. um but for about a week and I mean this is just me coming from New York which is like this big kind of overwhelming place the tempo there felt nice mm-hmm. um I don't know I enjoyed my time there yeah it's it's a slower more quieter more chill yeah pace I think and it's really great during the summer cool let's let's shift into back into the studio I'm curious what you know, I like to think about the ingredients an artist has has in their life that lead to a a positive, healthy day in studio. Mm-hmm. If you if you sort of unpack a, a good day in studio, can can you identify what that means or like what led to it? Mm-hmm. Um, it really just depends on if I can catch that current. Um, sometimes I have to force myself into it, but I feel when I've done an amount of work that i'm like happy with and if i so the labor yeah and Uh if i'm into what i'm making because i do spend entire days here where i have been sewing something all day and i'm kind of not sure if it's going in the right direction or if i'm into it um and then it takes coming back the next day and like catching that current again and then um seeing what happens but no day is the same and no day is guaranteed that it's going to be a successful work day. Um, there's no formula to what I do, and I don't necessarily have a plan when I come in here. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, it largely comes down to what these hands can do in a day, and right. if I feel, it's just feel. Mm-hmm. Um, are there reoccurring challenges that come up while in studio uh, in terms of like you just started you started talking about uh, i just spent all day or a couple days working on this thing i'm not quite sure about it is it a matter of just like working through or adding to it or subtracting from it to get it to a place that is you know satisfying you in some capacity i guess i'm wondering about the editing process and and how you when when you become the director and because I think materials can sometimes direct us mm-hmm. more than we direct it. And, and I'm, you know, I'm curious to hear like where you find that sweet spot. Yeah. I've never given up on something. Um, if I don't, if something doesn't fit or doesn't work, for example, there's a patch of fabrics on the floor in front of us right now that I've been sewing, um, started sewing yesterday. If I decide that this isn't, gonna work for the project that i'm doing i'll save it and then it'll be something else down the road right um i'll incorporate it into a larger quilt or i'll make something else with it sparkle's face i painted seven times it was gold and then it was black and then i chipped away at it some more to reveal the plaster again and then i painted it orange and then i painted it purple yeah that's layered up right there yeah so um it's only happened a couple times where i've decided to just chill on something um and then i used it for something else down the road Mm -hmm. i have a hard time you know not saving something yeah no i was gonna say i mean i feel like 
for the way that you are upcycling and using collecting using collections of things that you found it makes sense to hang on to it mm-hmm. and you know store it for another day or and it makes sense to me that like you know after working on this thing for a while you might tuck it away for mm-hmm. a, a bit and then pull it back out sometimes i think that space away from it is, ju- is just what we need yeah because you can see it in a, you know in a new through a new lens um so that makes sense to me another thing i, I think is really great for artists to share and to hear the story of how we got from A to B to C to D pro- professionally. Mm-hmm. So that sort of trajectory. Um, I know that you at one point were studying writing or journalism. Um, and then you sort of evolved towards visual art and completely bailed on institutional education. Um, can you just talk about sort of that? taking those steps and maybe some of your first experiences sharing your work outside of uh, a studio space or a workspace um, with, with a, with an audience. Yeah. Um, so after I graduated high school, um, because I had such a hard time towards the end of high school, um, when I finally did graduate, I did so with a really good standing and I got into all these schools. I kind of just blindly applied for all this shit and I didn't know, what it was or um, if it was the right thing for me. I got into the journalism program at Ryerson not understanding what journalism was. Uh, I went for it. I would used to tell people that I was there for a year. It was not a year. It was more like four months before I completely stopped going. Um, and then after that, I I tried again I went to George Brown College for a design program that was only one year, and I failed the first entire semester. Um, But during that time when I was attending George, or not attending George Brown, I was making art. Um, I was getting back into art. I was doing a lot of material research. I was using my mom's basement as like a weird whatever studio. Um, So working from home, essentially. Were you living at home, too? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, um... A friend of mine named Isaiah Blake was starting to curate these very random shows called This Is Not For You. Um, the first one, I think, was in Creatures Creating. Uh, we had one that I think was in his apartment. Um, we had another one. Then we got into Edward Day. These were like kind of like one night opening up for three days type of situation. Yeah. yeah. Um, and there would be a shit ton of art. Um in those spaces and so I guess this this is maybe like the beginning of how I started to approach art making and you identify as a self-taught artist yeah I guess I bring that up because I think you know you're sort of you're operating primarily in the contemporary art world now is that fair to say Mm -hmm. and I mean there's a long history and all sorts of different types of people that have found pathways into contemporary art that are outside of formally studying it in a fancy art school or something like that. Um, I think it's cool to hear like the sideways route in. Mm -hmm. Um, So being a self-taught artist, has that been advantageous because you haven't had to deal with some of the, you know, real or imagined obstacles that someone that like formally studied school 
Um, and maybe there's like some insecurities that come with having a art degree or something like that. Um, I don't know. I guess I'm, I'm curious if you found it easier or something else or, or more um, difficult. There are benefits and then there are disadvantages, yeah. right? Like it's never easy to have a career. It doesn't matter if you have a BFA or an MFA or whatever, like it's never easy. Um, one of the advantages that I feel I did have is that, you know, while all my peers were studying, I was just making and I was, you know, working a job and putting all of my money into material research and really just having time to like work and learn how to make work for me. I shared a studio with seven other artists for the last four years. Um, most of them were OCAD graduates, Ontario College of Art and Design, which is in Toronto. Um, and all of them, there wasn't a single one, all of them had a really hard time coming out of school and like figuring out how to make work. I guess that's what I meant about the obstacles that come with a formal uh, art education. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I've always worked in a really intuitive way and maybe that has something to do with the fact that I did not go for my BFA um, and I was able to just get into it and get to work and let things kind of come out and not think too much about that part of it and not be saddled with debt yeah i was still fiscal had some, debt i mean had some debt from those two colleges that i went to oh. for under a year mm -hmm. <laughs> um but yeah that's a huge part of it too as well um and then i mean i think there are still a lot of like archaic parts and people to contemporary art who um just aren't supportive for the sake of not being supportive you know, if you don't have a BFA, there are programs like the Whitney ISP that don't accept you if you don't have a BFA. These are things that I think are becoming less and less relevant that I don't personally think about or care about. Yeah. Um, There's a lot of antiquated um, requirements, I think, out there still. Yeah. I feel like support systems are important. Mm -hmm. um, and I'd like to think that um, our work is the sum of that support system uh, you know we made it but i think there's a lot of contributing factors um, that helped realize the work beyond us um or maybe maybe it's something else maybe it's it's a it's a more solo solo path to realizing this stuff for you um yeah i mean for a large part it has been a real solo path but i mean if we're talking about support systems i think that that comes in a lot of different forms from a lot of different people. I think that I have a wonderful community of mostly black, um, mostly queer um, peers who are also artists and writers who are immensely important to me just in my mental health and also in my creative growth. Um, I also think, you know, having a gallery is incredibly good for me. It's something that I didn't know if I wanted or needed for a long time, but in the position that I'm in now, I think I don't want to exist without a gallery just because there's so many parts of the art world that gives me extreme anxiety that I can't deal with. Yeah, a good um, gallery will help buff you, keep a buffer zone from you yeah. from that. Yeah, and then also, um, you know, getting to kind of be in contact and have relationships with other black professionals who I look up to, such as Lonnie or you know, Catherine McKittrick, who I just worked with um, at Queen's University in Canada, 
for a couple weeks, um, who's arguably, you know, one of the most important black scholars and writers. Um, so I think this support comes from like a lot of different places mm -hmm. and I access it at different times. Um, but that's definitely important. Even, you know, music, just listening to music and things like this. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I feel one way about my work when it's in studio when I'm working on it mm -hmm. and the labor. Um, and then there's how I feel or experience my own work when it's outside of here. And something changes when it leaves the studio, especially when it, when it sort of enters the marketplace, for lack mm -hmm. of a better term, the gallery system where there's commerce involved and the pressure of sales is involved. Do you feel differently about your work once it leaves here and when you see it in an in, in, in exhibition space? Um, does that change your relationship to your own work? No. No? No. Uh, I have very little, like, <clears throat> trust for this place called the market um, and also people's intentions. So I really kind of prime and pre prepare myself uh, for those emotions before things have to leave. Um, I feel like an onslaught of emotions a lot of the time, say in the context of a fair. Freeze New York last spring was like very difficult for me for that reason, especially after making all of these works that were so labor intensive and thinking about the way they're consumed, not just physically, but also in conversations and stuff like this um, can be really triggering, but it's nothing that like I haven't already kind of prepared myself for. Mm -hmm. It's dark, like the art world is dark. Being here and making art is the reason why, why I make art. Like I don't have any interest in the other parts of it. Right. Yeah. I mean, you talked about a need mm -hmm. f that comes from inside to make, and I, I don't know. It was. I think this was at your talk last week. Like, um, identify with that need to just like make outside of the fame and fortune that may or may not come with it. So that's nice to hear. Um, I mean, if yeah. you're like being an artist to like be famous and get rich one day, like stop now, <laughs> yeah. stop immediately and find something else to do. Yeah, I would agree. Um, I mean, this is sort of like my, uh, uh, like the pivot into um, how artists or how we define value and how we define success. Um, because I think a lot of us get lost and connect it too much to what you just described the market and the, the problems and challenges of that and illusion of that. Uh, so I'm wondering where you look for value in your work and other people's work and how you might define success or even satisfaction um, in this life. When I'm growing, when I can see visible growth in my own work, when I can see um, myself making different decisions and taking different risks in the way that I'm constructing something or just in the materials that I'm using, when I can see myself kind of evolving and when my ideas change as well. Um, that I think is really special. And if I, you know, if I look to anything or anyone else for approval, it's truthfully like the other black creatives in my life who I idolize and look up to, um, who I'm lucky enough to have relationships with and that to me is successful that to me is um 
the best thing that I can kind of hope for in doing this as well. Um, having those conversations with Lonnie, that's like a huge, huge feat for me. Um, you know, maybe getting to show alongside him one day. That's like a huge thing that I think about. I can see that. Who I want to kind of position myself with as an artist, I think is really important. It's well said. This is another like put you on the spot question, but do you remember the last great piece of culture that you experienced that, you know, that you had a strong visceral emotional response to sort of shook your bones? Does anything come to mind? Yeah. Maybe this is going to sound like corny, but like the new Dev Hines album. Um, Do you know Dev Hines, Blood Orange? Oh yeah. I know Blood Orange. Yeah. That's his name. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I don't know this. I haven't heard his new record. The new record, it's called Negro Swan. Um, I mean, he's an immensely talented artist um, and talented in so many different ways. And this album is just just a beautiful um, dedication or sentiment to black folks and queer folks. Um, and I definitely like cried the first few times that I listened to it because I think it's pretty rare that um, you know, we can listen to something and it kind of describes or paints a picture very precisely in our head of something that we feel as humans. And this album did that for me. Um, so that was pretty recent. I think the album came out this summer, this past summer. Cool. I'm going to check it out. Yeah. Um, we're sort of nearing the end here. Um, I don't know how comfortable you are listing or if you, if you have goals, um, sometimes I, keep those in because if I let them out then I'm accountable mm-hmm. and sometimes I I'm, I'm I kind of want to protect myself in that way and I don't want to I, I want to be able to fail and not have someone else's baggage about that mm-hmm. um, but do you have any goals that that you're comfortable sharing or even a dream project you just mentioned like having a show with Lonnie for example mm-hmm. is there is there anything else in that sort of space that comes to mind I'm going to just say very broad goals that I'm comfortable saying. These are always goals of mine, but I'm just going to say maintaining and maintaining my physical and mental health, um, having an art practice and, you know, navigating as, um, as a black woman, as a queer black woman, you know, takes a toll on your mental health for sure. So my goal is to kind of sustain and maintain and to thrive. Um, to be happy is another huge goal that I'm always striving to maintain because happiness is a maintenance. Agreed. Um, yeah, being able to uh, give back to my mom, taking my mom to Barcelona in May, which is going to be great. We're going to make art together. Is it uh, just a trip? To go to Barcelona or something else at the other side? There's uh, a project space called Cordova. Oh, okay. Um, the guy who runs it, um, his name is Nick Scazzari, and uh, he basically runs this project space there, and he asked me a couple years ago if I wanted to do something. Um, I told him that I was going to be traveling for, you know, six months, um, and he was like, well, why don't you come and do this project? So I'm going to go, I'm going to take my mom, and we're going to make paintings together. Amazing. Um, yeah. Paintings. So, you can make paintings. Yeah. Well, my mom does watercolors. Um, 
and I'm really into just collabing with her on whatever she wants right. to do. So I think that's going to be cool. Cool. It's very much like a no pressure zone. Right. Um, he, he invites artists to come and kind of just do whatever they want. So I feel really, um, free in that context. And I, I've collaborated with my mom before, but it's something that I definitely want to keep exploring. Yeah. I, I think that's it for my like broad kind of goals, I guess. Cool. Um, well, I, I really appreciate you participating in this project and your generosity with sharing uh, about your work and life. And, uh, you know, when I met you a, a couple of years ago at, at, uh, we did like a, we went to an art opening and whatever, but, um, I looked your work up shortly after that, I've been following it since, and it's been, um, really amazing to see it sort of develop and grow. And uh, I really appreciate the collision of history materials and the, um, ang uh, you know, the landscapes and the portraiture and mm -hmm. um, the self-reflection attributes of it. Um, and the other thing is it makes me want to make, which is one, oh. of the, one of the things that I look for in work. Like it makes me want to go and make something and your work definitely does, does that. So That's so nice to hear. Um, thanks, Tao. Really, really appreciate you yeah, being part you. of this. Thank you for coming all the way up to the Bronx today. We've made it to the end. A quick reminder that you can learn more about each contributing artist, find links to their online portfolios, and access the archive of past recordings by visiting deepcolorpodcast.com. Be sure to share this project within your community and rate and subscribe in the Apple Podcast directory or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening and check back soon for a new episode.